so Pastor Steve has been preaching through 1 Peter, and today we're going to finish chapter 2. If you're not already there, please turn there now. Um, If you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you'll find this passage on page uh, 1015. And as a recap, this book was written about 30 years after the death. Sorry, I can fix this. This uh, book was written about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter's writing to Gentile believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. All right. Um, so let's go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures grief while suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Take a moment to bow your heads and pray with me. Almighty God, thank you so much that you are with us. Thank you so much for your love, your goodness to us. Please meet with us now. Pray that you would fill this place with your spirit, fill me with your spirit, work through me, work through these words. Uh, God, And I pray that you would just open up the truth of your passage and this, your word, and that you would speak to hearts and draw people close to you. Um, and God, we pray that you are glorified in everything that is said and done here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, we're going to take a brief look at slavery. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters. Now the word translated servant here refers to household slaves. And slave is a word that is loaded with a lot of uh, emotions and associations. And it's difficult to enter into this discussion in our modern world without first, having a, for, without first pausing to have a conversation about the issue of slavery. Now, one of my former pastors taught through First Peter a few years ago, and I found his explanation particularly clear and helpful. So this first point is going to be a combination of his notes and my thoughts, because it's important that we speak about this topic clearly and accurately and carefully. So jumping right in, the Greek word for the servant here is hoikedai, a word that ties to the word for household. So Peter is dealing with those slaves who work in the household of a master. Paul also writes to this group in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians chapter 3 and 4. And again, the difficult thing about reading the biblical commands regarding slaves is that you and I have a very hard time not reading a modern understanding of slavery back into what was happening 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this. So when you and I hear the word slave, we easily think of the slave trade, the civil war. We think of racism, kidnapping, human brutality. But the things we see, what we see regulated in scripture is not the same thing. In the 18th and 19th century, in America and Europe, slaves were bought and sold as pieces of property. 
West African tribes would raid neighboring tribes, kidnapping people and bringing them to the ships of slave traders. These slave traders would brutalize the slaves and carry them over the sea in the most inhumane of conditions. Families were torn apart as men and women were sold to different masters. I want you to keep these three things in mind. American and European slavery, number one, was the result of kidnapping. Number two, it was perpetual. There was no end or way out for the slave. And number three, it was excused based on a dehumanizing racism. Slave owners and traders viewed their slaves not as human beings, but as some sort of subhuman species. They assumed that white Americans and Europeans were of a superior race and therefore did not have to treat dark-skinned people with respect as people created in the image of God. And I want to pause a moment on this point because God is very clear. Every human being is made in God's image and is therefore of enormous and equal value. To pretend otherwise based on arbitrary external traits such as skin color or people group is a sin born of deep arrogance and, and blindness. And because it devalues God's image bearers, it's a direct offense against God himself. The Bible does sometimes discuss slavery because it was part of how society worked at the time. However, in scripture, slavery was never based on a person's skin color or on any assumption that a slave was subhuman. In fact, most of the Old Testament commands regarding slaves were commands that slaves not be mistreated. And in contrast with American slavery, the Bible is clear that to kidnap a person and to sell him as a slave is a crime punishable by death. So looking back at this passage, Peter is writing to Gentiles who are household slaves under the law of the Roman Empire. Now in Rome, a person might become a slave to avoid poverty or even to learn a trade. Many owners of slaves in Rome treated their slaves kindly, almost as family members. Slaves might be household servants or workers in the field. Slaves might also be doctors or teachers. And many masters would even set their slaves free in their wills. And slaves had the opportunity, in general, to earn money and could eventually purchase their freedom. In Rome, a person might choose to become a slave for a season in order to actually take a step up in society. But it is also true that, in the Roman Empire, slavery could be brutal. Not all slaves had fair and just masters. And Paul is clear in the New Testament that if a, if a Christian slave can gain his freedom, he should do so. Now, we also need to ask, what is the nearest parallel for us today to what Peter is talking about in this section? At first glance, one might say that nothing is quite like Roman household slavery in our culture. And that is true. But there certainly are principles that apply to living as a Christian in the workplace in general. Now, no boss in an everyday American job has the kind of authority over your person as did the Roman masters had over the slaves. But many of us have worked in places where we had to submit to leaders. Many of us have worked under leaders who were very difficult to serve under. And many of us have been unfairly untreated. So for most of us, the best way to apply this passage in your personal life is going to be the call to live as a Christian in your workplace. You may have more freedoms than did the servants in Peter's letter, and you may have a way out of your job if things get bad that was not available to Roman household slaves. But many of the principles will carry over from that setting to your job. So point, that brings us to point number two. Again in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For a lot of us, 
being subject looks like an employee, employee and employer relationship where we have a superior above us and we are to do our best to meet the demands placed on us. And sometimes deadlines are stressful. Sometimes instructions are ambiguous and sometimes we don't think the perfect person above us has all the information or is giving instructions in the best way. And yet here it is saying, be subject, be respectful. Even if we are under an employer who is difficult to work for, we are still to be subject to them. I'm going to quickly jump to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 20, 22, where Paul says, Slaves, in everything, obey those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And okay, so when we work, we are to give our best, not because we're trying to please men, but because we're, or because we're trying to climb the corporate ladder. We are to do our best because ultimately we are working for God. We are to give our best as though God were there, as though God were the one giving us our report. And it moves on in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So sometimes we might have a good boss, one that we like, one who gives clear direction, who makes our things easy for us. And that's motivating. That's, that's encouraging. We like working for them. But then there are other bosses where it's a pain. It's a real struggle. And it's not a good work environment, but that's what we're stuck with right now. And when we read verses like this, sometimes, I know I do, sometimes we have a tendency to have a mental checkbox and say, oh yeah, respect those in authority. Check. I got that. I do that. But sometimes, though, we'll do that without actually thinking through are there areas where I'm not obeying this command? So to put this in the context of your work, be subject to your masters with all respect. If you have a boss who is good, kind, and gracious, are you being subject? Hopefully it's not too hard to respect them, even if they don't make all the best decisions. But it also says, also to the unjust. And some of us can relate to that all too well. So if you are in that situation where you have an unjust boss, how do you respond when your boss is unfair, unkind, even unreasonable? What do you do? Do you complain? Do you develop a bad attitude? Are you bitter? Does your attitude affect how you treat other people, your coworkers, your spouse, your kids? Do you make uh, snide remarks? Are you ungracious to your boss? Or do you shortcut your work? In short, does your response to an unjust master cause you to act contrary to the way that Jesus would? Let me just say that again. Does your response to an unjust master lead you to act contrary to the way that Jesus would? We are called to exemplify what Jesus did. So going back to Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. It's not man you're serving, you're serving God, and your behavior reflects on him. Now, you are not accountable for other people's actions or reactions or even their sin. You are responsible for your actions, how you respond, regardless of the situation you're in. Whatever situation you find yourself in, live there for God's glory. So going on to point three, enduring injustice. Which brings us first 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, if you 
lie at work and say, hey, I did this work and this job, but you didn't actually do the work, and then you get in trouble for it later, there's no additional credit in enduring. You can say, hey, my boss is angry at me and yelling at me because I made this mistake, but I'm going to take it patiently, but you didn't fulfill your responsibilities in that scenario. Uh, you made a mistake. It's right for you to be getting correction for that. There's no additional honor there. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this is interesting. Because here it's saying, hey, I did everything right. I did a good job. And the boss didn't see that. He saw something else that I wasn't even responsible for. And I'm getting in trouble. I'm getting yelled at for this thing I didn't do. Or maybe, maybe you're taking a stand as a Christian. And it's for your standards that... Uh, you are facing losing your job or being looked over for a promotion or facing other ridicule. And either way, you're enduring injustice because you're being mindful of God. It says this is a gracious thing. Just take courage. Take heart, dear Christian, dear friend. You're doing what is right. You're doing what is right and that honors God and that will last. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Point four. We see the ultimate servant endure the ultimate injustice. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 says, For to this you have been called. And this is a verse I want you to, to circle, to highlight, to underline. Because I want you to look at this. For to this you have been called. This is your perfect purpose. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. We are to be like Christ. Jesus suffered unjustly. And Peter is pointing to Jesus' response to suffering as our ultimate example. Even if your employer is unjust, even if you lose your job because of your Christian testimony, you are to follow Christ's example in Jesus' steps. So let's take a moment to look at the example Jesus laid out for us. Verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled or mocked, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He committed no sin. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He loved God with all his heart every moment of his human life here on earth. He didn't sin. He didn't lie. He didn't steal. He didn't cheat. He didn't speak falsely. He wasn't angry unjustly. And this sinless man, when he was reviled and mocked and scorned, he didn't dish back out the same talk. He didn't push it back in their face. And we've seen Jesus take down the Pharisees with arguments. I'm sure there are a ton of things he could have said to silence his accusers here in this situation. But here, when his life was on the line, he didn't do that. Why? It's because his goal was not to escape a harmful situation. His goal was to trust his father. Jesus left us an example of trusting God's ultimate justice. And note the word justice here. He committed himself to him who judges justly. What was that word back in verse 18? Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Why? Why can you do that? Why can you submit to an unjust authority and still have confidence that justice will be done? It's because you entrust yourself to him who judges justly. One of my favorite definitions of the fear of God brings in this concept of justice. 
This quote is by David Innes, who pastored Hamilton Square Baptist Church in San Francisco. Listen to this definition. The fear of God is the absolute moral certainty that God will without fail judge and destroy all that is wrong and reward and establish what is right. Let me read that one more time. The fear of God is the absolute moral certainty that God will without fail judge and destroy all that is wrong and reward and establish what is right. There are other good definitions of the fear of God, but all of them are based on God's character, which is a character of justice. God is just, which means that if there is good, he will reward that. If there is evil, he will punish that. God judges justly. So we don't have to take that into our own hands to try to even the scales ourselves. But this should also give us pause to reflect on our own lives. Because that means any wrong that we have done, we are accountable for. You and I are just as guilty as the wickedness, the wicked people we see around us. So the difficult situation you're in, where you see all the faults of your boss or whatever the difficult relationship is, it's so easy to see the faults of the other person. It's so easy to see their sin, their pride, their arrogance, their deceit, even manipulation. You see all the problems with the other side. But take a look at yourself. Any bitterness within you, any evil thought, any thought of lust, any lie, any lie, no matter how small, we also, one sin is enough to make us stand condemned before God. And we are all condemned before God. We, we need more than just an example. We also need a substitute, which brings us to point five, justice in substitution. Verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins. Jesus himself, in his human form, took our sin and carried our sin with him when he was stretched out on that cross, on that tree. And he died. He was executed. He was killed. He got a death penalty when he didn't deserve yet death. And yes, he got a death penalty from the Romans when he didn't deserve death. But hear this. He got a death penalty from God Almighty when he didn't deserve death. Do you understand the weight of this? Jesus, perfect, sinless life. God Almighty, who is completely just, punishes, gives the death penalty to someone who is sinless, someone who is innocent. How is this possible? And the answer is substitution. Here's why this works. It's because in the phrase right before that, Jesus himself took our sins. Jesus volunteered to switch places with us. That's why this works. Jesus took our sins. So when Jesus took our sins and stood at that cross, when God looked at him, what did he see? Did he see Jesus' perfect life when he dished out his wrath on sin? No. He saw our sin that Jesus took. And God punished Jesus for every sin that you and I had ever committed. Let's take a minute again. God punished Jesus. Think about, take a moment to think about some sins in your life. God punished Jesus as though Jesus had committed those sins. The lie you told. That unkind thought you had. God punished Jesus for that. Sin must be punished. And so how does this work? Jesus took our sins, but what does he give us? He gave us his righteous life. So that in God's eyes, God, sees, God no longer sees our sin. That's already been dealt with. That's already been punished. God now sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. And that 
is why we can have assurance of salvation. That is why God's people can have 100% confidence that we are going to heaven. Why? Not because I'm good. Not because I've done something right. Not because I've said something right. Not because I've, I've prayed specific words. It's because Jesus is perfect and he credited that to me. And it doesn't mean I got saved and became perfect. No, it means that in the sight of God, legally, under God's law, I stand before him pure, untarnished, sinless. And again, it's not because I live a sinless life, far from it. It's because God sees Jesus' perfect life that's on my account. It's the infinite perfection of Jesus' life. Brings us to point six, believe and be saved. So in light of this truth, do you understand what a wretched thing it is to say, I can do good to earn my way to heaven? Or what a wretched thing it is to say, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to work for your salvation. You also need to give to your church. You also need to come on Sundays and take communion in order to be saved. Do you realize what you're saying if you say that? You're saying that Jesus' perfect life was not enough. And that's why this is such a powerful thing, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, us wretched sinners, every last one of us, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And like the Philippian jailer asked Paul, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer saw that he was a sinner. He saw that he was a wretched man. He saw that these men had something he didn't have. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And what did they tell him? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, in, if you never see yourself as a sinner, if you never make that first step of seeing you are guilty, there's, you have no need for a savior if you're not guilty. If you think you are, if you think you are good, if you think you are in the good category in and of yourself, you don't know God. You don't know this holy God. The first step is you must realize that you're a sinner. And then in response to seeing your own sin, you believe in Jesus. This means entrusting yourself entirely to Jesus and his finished work on the cross. If I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. If I don't have Jesus, I will die in my sins. I'll have to take the punishment for every wrong I've done. And I will face the punishment in hell for all eternity. And God would be just to put me there. Because God is perfect. Think about the absolute purity, holiness, beauty of our eternal God. And then see us, what we've done, how we've responded to him. The things we've said, the things we've thought, the things we've done. We've sinned against an all-holy God. An eternal God. And that requires an eternal punishment. That's why God is just to send every sinner to hell. And that is why it's so sweet to hear Jesus' work. He himself took our sin in his body on the, on the tree. Which brings us finally to point seven. The shepherd of our souls. After we're saved, now that we're legally clean before God, what do we do? Let's look at the rest of verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because Jesus died for our sin, we're no longer enslaved to sin. We don't have to obey it anymore. In Romans 6, Paul explains this. I'm just going to quote from verses 1 through 12 here. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
It's because of Jesus' death we are free to live to righteousness and walk in newness of life. So in this passage, we've seen Peter deal with one difficult situation that we might face, unjust authority. He's shown us what to do, be subject and endure. More importantly, he's shown us how to do this. Jesus left us an example that we might follow in his steps. Jesus trusted God's justice. And Jesus took our sins so that we are not enslaved to it anymore. It's because of this beautiful truth that we can have hope. It's because of this that we can live to righteousness and be mindful of God as we endure injustice. Now, if you think about this command, die to sin and live to righteousness, you can see how it broadly applies in our lives. Again, quoting Romans 6, 11 through 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. In situations of injustice, of suffering, of pain, of fear, Jesus left us an example so that you might follow in his steps. This command to die to sin and live to righteousness is not given as another impossible task in an endless to-do list. It's given to strengthen us, to give us direction in a difficult, difficult world. And when you find yourself stumbling under the weight of injustice or pain or temptation, take courage. Jesus walked this road before you so you could follow him. You are not enslaved to sin. You can endure. You can persevere in hope. You can live to righteousness. And if that call to live to righteousness still feels overwhelming, know that you're not alone. This is why Peter reminds us that Jesus didn't only take our sin at the cross. He is still currently, presently caring for us. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice, you were like sheep. You were going astray. That was your character. That was your life. But have now returned. And this happened to, to you. If you are a Christian, it's God's grace that brought you back to him. To the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. What did we read in verse 24? He bore our sin. He gave his life for us, for his sheep. And what is he doing as our shepherd? He's feeding us. He's giving us his word. He's sustaining us. First Peter chapter 1 says, He keeps our faith steadfast. He guides us. Ephesians chapter 1 says, He has put his Holy Spirit in us as the seal, as the stamp proving our salvation. And that seal means we belong to God. And he's guarding us. He's guiding us. He's, he's our shield. He's protecting us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's done. Every sin has been paid for. And Jesus offered to switch, offers to switch places with us to give us his righteous life so that legally, before God, we can stand in the spotless robes of Jesus Christ. And God can look on us and see not our sin that would condemn us to hell, but he sees instead the perfection of Jesus Christ. And he can say, my child, you are mine. I have called you by name. That is what the shepherd does. So in conclusion, we've seen God is the just judge. It's because of his justice we can endure injustice and trust him to make it right. But that standard he judges by is absolute perfection. And if you do not meet that standard, the penalty is death in hell. But there is someone who took that penalty for you, who satisfied God's just you, justice to rescue us. 
So if you come to God, admit you're a sinner, believe Jesus was the perfect son of God, that he died on the cross bearing your sin and rose again the third day, that he is alive, that he is Lord, reigning in heaven now. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and ask him to save you, he will. John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Again, Almighty God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of it. I pray that you would uh, be glorified with our lives and what we do. Draw us closer to you and help us to glorify you the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.